Support comes from Clipper Vacations, offering getaways on the Clipper Fast Ferry to Victoria, B.C. Clipper Ferry and hotel packages from $250 per person. Enjoy historic charm, afternoon tea, and more. Terms and conditions apply. Details and booking at clippervacations.com. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. You know how your public radio station can ask you to make a pledge of financial support, but we can't force you to? Is bus fare like that? Train fare? Well, we got some information this week from the Washington State Supreme Court, and we can't wait to tell you all about that and the rest of the week's news. And here to do that with me, KUOW labor and economy reporter Monica Nicholsberg. Monica, Hello, good to have you back. Good to be here. Always good to have the nickel back. Also, freelance journalist Joanne Silberner. And uh, hi, Joanne. Hi, Thanks good to be coming. here. Good to have you here. Contributing columnist Joni Balter. Welcome, Joni. Hello there. Good to see all of you. And uh, we can see you because we do stream the show on uh, YouTube and Facebook. Just search KUOW Public Radio. Okay, let's get into the news of the week. A few years ago, In Snohomish County, a man boarded a community transit bus. On that bus were two sheriff's deputies who did not see the guy pay his fare. They asked him to prove he had paid, and when the man did not comply, they told him to get off the bus. They asked him his name. He gave them a fake name. They fingerprinted him. They then arrested him for making false statements. This week, The Washington State Supreme Court, it went all the way to the state Supreme Court, and the court ruled in favor of that passenger. Joni Balter, does this mean that no one has to pay for a ride on transit if they don't want to? That's so provocative, you know, but let's be clear. The court upheld the need for fares to be collected in general, but in this very specific case, the state, uh, the court ruled, did not meet its burden of proving that the rider, his name was Zachary Meredith, that he voluntarily consented to being questioned by law enforcement merely by boarding that bus. Hmm. So, yeah, fares are going to still be collected, but there, and we should be honest about this, there's a big difference between uh, what is legal and what is sort of politically okay to, to do for a lot of very good reasons, if you think about it. So, talk to Sound Transit. I'll use them as an example here. So, on Sound Transit, these fare... Uh, ambassadors, as they're now called. They, you can tell them because they're wearing these blue and yellow outfits. Yep. Well, they can come up to you and say, hi, did you pay? But if a passenger, and you were alluding to this earlier when we were talking here in the studio, if a passenger says no or st- stares at you or just completely ignores, ignores you, mm-hmm. that's when it's starting to get a little tricky. Um, so what's going to happen is employees are not going to stop you for non-payment. They're, they're going to keep walking. If it starts to be sort of, oh, this could turn into a confrontation, you'll see these fair ambassadors. They're ambassadors, after all. Think about that. Mm-hmm. They're going to keep walking. Uh, and I'm guessing that the non-payers kind of know this. Um, but, you know, there's a little pressure. It's Maybe it's peer pressure or something. Uh, they do announce that they're going to um, collect fares in, in a certain amount of time. And they're going to kind of lean on you a little bit, like, did you pay? But that's as far as it's going to to go. Okay, so this state Supreme Court <laughs> ruling this week, that was really, it, my impression is it just came down to the fact that these were sheriff's deputies. That's, uh, and and that this, so even the sheriff's deputies, I don't know whether they could have uh, enforced this fair in any other way, but, but, but leave aside law enforcement you can still have the fair ambassadors, but the court didn't really say anything about about any coercion, any way to make people pay. It's status quo. Basically by that. But what they're getting at is the fact that, you know, they used the fact that he got on transit. He boarded the bus to say that they can they can go all the way to fingerprinting him and figuring out that he has um, a, a couple of prior issues to deal with and then go all the way to arresting him. That's kind of not where we're going in, yeah. in this area anymore with um, not paying your fare. Okay. So – I got. I, I sent this question out to our our listeners. We have a, a community feedback club, and 
and I wanted to know other people's experiences here. And a listener named Michelle wrote back and said, I've seen youth and low-income people hassled and also people likely experiencing homelessness. I don't think the county should waste money on fair enforcement. They should use those funds for discounted bus passes instead. But we have discounted bus passes, right? Yes, we do. We have dollar orca cards for low-income people. We have the the youth ride for free as it is. The city gives free orca cards to low-income housing <clears throat> residents. So, so uh, another listener uh, uh, who is anonymous wrote and said, "How are we supposed to build and maintain these systems if people won't do their part to pay for it?" Well, that gets into something else I was I was thinking about. So, you know, if you go back in time to when we voted for um, something like Sound Transit, which is very very expensive. I wonder how folks would have felt if they knew that as time went on that there very little or much less than was anticipated um, of fare collections would go toward operating costs. I mean, I think there was some bargain with folks that riders would pay, mm. uh, you know, part of the cost of building this very, very expensive system, which and of course way we down, all love. Right? Fair and that's collection way, is down. way down. Yeah, yeah, to just give you one example. Um, link light rail, uh, actual collections are down from 34% of operations uh, in 2019 to 10% um, two years later. So, you know, we have, to, we have to really think about this. You know, how are we going to, and I'm not saying there's a necessary connection here, but if people see that the system isn't kind of functioning properly, they they might not use it as much. You have to be careful about that. I mean, I read a story about in Los Angeles, and there's there's not a direct link here, but you know, fentanyl users have have, have overtaken their train, and so ridership drops for that reason. Well, now that's a separate issue, right? Uh, it is. It is indeed. Yeah. Yeah. No, yes, I think Joanne. we'll talk about that later. But, yeah. You know, the fair ambassadors that you mentioned, they I, I've seen them in action. Last time I came in, uh, I got on the train. Uh, Fair ambassadors came through. He hadn't paid, and they did just what Bill said. They talked to him, and they said, "You know, uh, you're supposed to pay." And we're going on. And then they got stopped by a rider who said, "Hey, I pay my taxes, and I paid to be on this, and you need to hassle them more." Yeah. <laughs> you know, the ambassadors were amazingly diplomatic. I was looking at this, thinking this is going to be an incident between the ambassadors and the guy who hadn't paid the fare. It wasn't. It almost became an incident between the ambassadors. And, and and this rider who's saying, hey, you guys, you know, they should pay. And meanwhile, I'm sitting there thinking, hey, in Olympia, there's no fare. It's free for everybody. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's something to think about. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm not a transit reporter, but I don't think that or I have not heard of a public transportation agency that is fully funded or even like mostly funded just by fares. And so I think maybe we need to get a, like, we need to shift the conversation and the thinking and the way that riders think about fares. Because, you know, taxpayer dollars pay for our roads. We are subsidizing transit for people who drive, uh, but we're not necessarily doing it to the same extent with public transit. Well, I'll just say really quickly, I'm not sure how long ago the read, the um, listener who who mentioned that they saw uh, the fair ambassadors hassling people? I don't know how long ago that was. And your example, Joanne. I mean, you can't stop people from speaking to how they feel about this. It's controversial. It is. So, is the choice between free rides and turnstiles? Well, to go to the turnstile issue, and I know that Sound Transit has looked at that a couple times, but you have to go back also to the time when these were built. And one of the ways they saved money on the building was to have these accessible platforms. So it would be really expensive uh, to put it in, but, you know, if you can make the case. And I just think about the escalators never working. How are they going to keep these turnstiles working? I don't know. They work in some cities. I think one way to think about it is sort of a pay-what-you-can system, which is – sort of de facto, if you're not doing a lot of fair enforcement, like I think people who can afford it or or maybe their employer pays for it, they're taking transit every day, for the most part will pay. If you're frequently taking transit and not paying for it, I would guess that probably it's because it's kind of a stretch to have to pay for it. I don't know. I don't know whether that's true or not. It might be, or there might be just a norm of, you know, it's just another thing to hassle with. I, I truly don't know. Um, I got a, a note finally from uh, Roger who said, fair enforcement costs more than it's worth. 
The salary of those enforcing and their bosses is double what they prevent. Running transit like a bank is the opposite of the idea of service. Consider the cost of road building and maintenance reduced by people using transit. So, and by the way, if you want to be part of our community feedback club, you just text the word club to this phone number, 206-926-9955, 206-926-9955. You text the word club. Okay, do we, do we about cover that? The only thing I would add is that, you know, uh, not counting what impact we've had on how people are going to behave today, uh, I think that, that people paying fares is something like 85% for light rail. So folks, folks seem to want to – that number, that percentage seems to want to support the system that way. Yeah. Well, speaking of expensive public projects that people might not have to pay for, when the Alaskan Way Viaduct came down, the big you know, highway along our downtown waterfront was gone, and the city of Seattle started giving the waterfront a makeover, new park, new amenities, new water access, new promenade, new bike path. And as often happens – with public projects, the city paid for it partly by taxing property owners whose property values were supposedly going to rise because of this makeover. But some of those property owners sued the city over that, and Joni, a King County judge, has sided with those property owners. Why? Uh, sided with the property owners because, you know, what the ruling said, it talked a little bit about how they um, they didn't really factor in um, – that these, the, first of all, they had they had calculated the numbers, you know, long ago, and that happens. But also that they didn't factor in the effects of a global pandemic on property values. Now think about it in the bigger picture here. Seattle is really lucky. We're going to get this new downtown waterfront park, this new face of the city. We're having some troubles downtown, in case you haven't heard. And so, this is a good thing. And long term adjacent or nearby property owners, their values are going to go up because they're near this park. But for now, uh, I think what the what the judge is saying, and we don't know yet if there will be appeal from the city, um, right now this is addressing the specific assessments on these seven owners. They own together, I believe, 20 properties. These are big owners, hotels, you know, the Marriott, the some Four office. seasons, yeah, yeah, some some big stuff here, but I just I I I don't think this is some big huge uh, question about how um, local improvement districts work. I think it's much more specific to this project, and you know this is all. Well, what what about the what is specific to the project? The only specific thing I've heard is the pandemic. But I don't understand. But the how pandemic the- is pretty pretty impactful on va- on property values. Well, but. I mean, let's say the pandemic lowered property values. We don't know that the improved waterfront didn't keep the property values from falling even lower than they would have. In other words, and and we'll talk about the pandemic later, but we're supposedly slowly coming out of that. I can't tell. You you seem confident that this is not an indictment of local improvement districts in general, but I can't tell why that is. Well, because, look, this is to be expected in a project like this. This is a big project. It impacts kind of a broad swath of the city. And this is just the negotiations. You know, you, you sue because you think you've, um, you can probably do better uh, on the assessment yeah. now yeah. when the property value goes up. And I don't know exactly how these um, uh, agreements read. When the value goes up, the city will, will be able to collect more. Oh, so the city can assess later on. I believe on- it's ongoing. I, that I actually technically do not know the answer to that. Okay. Point, Any other questions or reactions? No, I just, I very rarely sympathize with the big guys, but I had an issue in, in my house in Wallingford where the house next door came down and a new one came up, blocked our view of Lake, we had a lovely view of Lake Union, it was gone. And I went to the assessors and said, hey, you know, our our property has lost, our house has lost value. We now look into our neighbor's bathroom. And that's not a selling point, the way this yeah. beautiful view of Lake Union was. They listened. I, I had a hearing. They asked questions. We talked, and uh, I did not win. <laughs> <laughs> but, but these, but these property owners, I don't think they're trying to make a case that it's not more beautiful now that the viaduct is down and there's this beautiful makeover. And Seattle used local improvement districts this way to build the streetcar line at South Lake Union to build Aurora Bridge. I, I saw in the the Seattle Times reminded me Denny Regrade. So. 
there's a history of this, but one of the uh, notes that the judge made, according to this Times article, is that the city, quote, the city hypothesized property values far in advance. And I thought that's how lids worked. Whether you like them or don't like them, that's separate. But I'm, I'm really curious what happens now with, like, who's going to pay for the waterfront project now? Well, that's Somebody's exactly what they're it. trying to assess as they sit there uh, in the city's attorney's office today, I've heard, to try to figure out should they appeal. I mean, I think this is a predictable part of the process. And, the grow, uh, you know, on, on the list of things that um, represent the growing pains of creating this brand new, you know, waterfront. And, you know, they will always have to assess it and figure it out. And, and we're in the middle of the negotiations right now, just even talking about it. Monica, any more to add? Do you feel we covered it? I think you covered it. Okay. Um, so, as you said, bottom line is the city might appeal. So we'll see what what even happened. But this is the state's. This was a no. This, this was King a County. King County judge. Yeah. Okay, so there's possibly more to go. All right, let's take a pause. I promised COVID, um, and that and more coming up as we figure out what happened this week with my guests. We have a journalist panel here. We have Monica Nicholsberg from KUOW. And journalists Joanne Silberner and Joni Balter with us, and we're going to take a short break and be right back. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. Support comes from Gather Pottery, hosting ceramicist Sarah Anderson, teaching a weekend graffito workshop for all levels, May 18th and 19th at Gather Pottery in Interbay. Learn more at gatherpottery.com. KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke with political analyst Joni Balter labor and economy reporter Monica Nicholsberg, and freelance journalist Joanne Solberner. Joanne, you specialize in health reporting, which is good because I'd like to ask <laughs> you about our pandemic. It is going to be 60 degrees or so today, and we can go outside more and more, gradually more. Uh, buses and classrooms can open their windows, etc. So are COVID cases plunging as the days lengthen? They're going down. Uh, we're low, according to the county. Uh, well, I'm just looking up my numbers now, but that we're definitely low. Things are getting better, but things are also going to change on the prevention front because federal the federal funding activities are going to end in May. Uh, and then on the local side, masking is going to end. Masking requirements are going to end April 3rd for places like hospitals, although individual ones can still put them back into effect. But this is all happening uh, against a background of it's not over. There are still people getting sick. There's still immunocompromised people who are having problems. We really need to keep on paying attention. Are testing sites and vaccination sites go, about to go away? Well, the county says that they've got enough to go through the summer, and then they'll see what they can do. Uh, vaccinations are going to start costing for uh, non-kids. <laughs> People over 18 are going to, uh, if you're insured, there's likely to be a copay, and it's not going to be cheap, these vaccinations. I've, I've seen numbers like $150, $180. But here's the thing. We don't know. If you're fully vaccinated now, and you should take this opportunity to get fully vaccinated while it's still free, uh, nobody knows about boosters. You know, they're talking, the FDA, CDC talking maybe once a year, but they don't really have data. They don't. The full immune response and what makes a, an effective immune response has been predicated on the quick immune response, you know, the antibodies that go up within weeks and stay up for months and then go down. The long-term immune response hasn't really been studied enough to say, yeah, you're going to need it every year. Or, you know, look at tetanus. We only need that every 10 years. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows where COVID is in here. It's, it's Somebody called us a shot in the dark whether we're going to continue to need vaccination. So my suggestion here is get fully vaccinated now, you know, have that booster with the, you know, with the Omicron one. And, you know, we'll see what happens. That was me. I, I said we were I just feels like we're stumbling around in the dark. It's, Absolutely. you know, boosters are a great example. I can't remember the last time 
someone with authority and expertise told me this is what you should be doing on a regular basis. You know, it's just kind of choose your own COVID adventure. And I've got the numbers now, actually. (laughs) We've got the week ending March 15th. There were in King County 157 cases, 10 hospitalizations and one death. So that's pretty low. Are, are we? Are people still reporting? Do we really know? That's how many a problem, cases? right? The county's very quick to say it's very hard to collect data. When, you know, I don't know how much you test at home. I test at home a fair amount. I don't tell anybody. <laughs> well, I haven't had anything to tell yet, but I'm waiting. So, so I'll ask all of you: How fast did our masks come off today in this room, in this studio? Pretty quick. Yeah, we're right? all maskless. We're all maskless. But, but I know that you're all you're both fully vaccinated. Mm-hmm. I. Uh, but wait, how do you count fully vaccinated? Because um, I think my last vaccination was a good six months ago. Am that, I up to speed? I, I think the name of the game here. I'm sorry to say, is people are going to be confused. Yes. Um, you know which group Absolutely. is to worry. Are you fully vaccinated? Absolutely. If you're six months out from the last one, I just I just think. We need a clearer message from folks. Yes. I do. And this has been the problem with this all along is and, – and I think the county has done a great job. When, when the county makes comments, they always say, you know, this is what we know now. This is the situation now. But on the national level, we've been told things that – as fact that are – conjecture that have been proven to be wrong, you know, the initial don't mask, remember that? Mm -hmm. And then they came back and they said, well, yeah, we just said that because we didn't have enough masks. Well, why didn't you say that? You know, why didn't you say at the moment our best advice is instead of saying, here's what you should do. And now we really need what you're exactly what you're talking about. We really need to know. One of the problems here is collecting data. Collecting data is really hard. So, you know, how how many people who have been vaccinated have had further illnesses? We don't know. Nobody's counting. Well, because it was so politically charged all the way through, I think it was difficult for the county, the federal government and the state and all these entities to say, this is what we know right now. We could be wrong. We could change. That's what they needed to do. And hindsight's beautiful for everybody. We all love hindsight. But, you know, so the mask thing is the best example of like a 180 that really, really sort of helped them lose some credibility. Yes. Uh, and so, the, it, you know, how would it have sounded, however, if they said, you really need a mask, but we don't want you to get one because there's not enough. So that message wasn't going to cut it either. They needed a third one, which I haven't written yet, and neither did they. Well, the third one could say, what we know now, the best approach is medical people, you need the mask, you're exposed a lot. The rest of you, we're still trying to figure it out. Just let us know that. And, you know, put the medical people first because they were the most at risk. They still are the most at risk. You know, the idea that we're dropping mask requirements for them, I, I don't want to question, or maybe I do. I, I, if I were a healthcare worker in an environment where there are a lot of people in closed rooms, I'd keep my mask on. I just want to say the city and county here did do a great job of informing us and keeping us safe because we had really high vaccination rates, high mask use, and low incidence of cases. Well, we had, we were, you know, maybe the reason, there are two reasons for that. One is it's a great department. It really is. It's, it's uh, nationally one of the best. And, but locally we had the first, we had, you know, some of the first outbreaks here in the nursing home and in the, uh, the choir. We were really early on. Speaking, Monica, speaking of nursing homes, um, we, your KOW's labor and economy reporter, we have a statewide nursing shortage. And, and the nurses we do have, you know, I don't, I don't know how they're doing, but what's, what's happening on that front? Yeah, I mean, there's a crisis in in healthcare, certainly, but it's not the only industry. There are a handful from the pandemic that really have not recovered from the huge numbers of workers who left and didn't come back. I know that at the legislative level, there's some efforts here in Washington to support nurses, to give them more authority when making staffing decisions um, that look like they're moving forward. But I'm not sure that those really get to the systemic problems here that are affecting nurses and other types of workers. Well, first, about those the, the legislative efforts, Joanne, we, we, we've talked for a while about are the, is the state going to mandate that there are certain staff-to-patient ratios at hospitals? And that's been a controversy. So where are we now? The legislature's in session. What are lawmakers thinking of doing about this nursing staffing situation? Yeah, that, that was a hot debate. The, the nurses really wanted numbers. You know, we need 
this number of nurses in this situation, you know, with this number of patients, they they wanted very specifics. The Washington Hospital Association really fought them tooth and nail on that. What came out of it is the, a bill that's passed the Senate is in the House now, which would puts nurses onto a staffing committee. So the hospitals have to will have to have committees that determine staffing and staffing rules and set standards. Nurses will be on that. How much power they'll have yeah. remains to be seen. At least they'll be heard. You know, I think one of the things here is, you know, of all the, you know, in the medical professions, you know, the doctors are on the front line. The nurses are in the rooms all the time. And they, they, you know, there have actually been complaints of abuse. There is another piece of legislation I just heard about was basically to prevent nurse abuse. You know, they're they're out there. They're, the numbers here are, I, I just got this from the Nurses Association, 100,000 nurses in the state, only 70,000 are working. And the Hospital Association says we're down six, we need 6,000 more. Nurses are just not coming back. They've been overworked. They've been, there's another bill that concerns mental health for nurses that the rule now, if you want to get workers' comp or workers' comp considerations, is you have to have an incident. You know, you had an accident, you fell off a ladder, you were attacked by a patient, whatever it is. Now, there's some legislation that would make it clearer that it's an ac- accumulation of events can cause the kind of, uh, of problems that someone might have that would allow them to get mental health care and, you know, maybe get reassigned or have accommodations. Okay. Because it's because they're really out there, and they've had a tough time of it in this epidemic. Without going too deep into the weeds on that, I just want to say nurses rule. <laughs> um, they proved their absolute heroism during COVID and, and all through these recent years. And then I would like to quote one, one great consumer of health care, as he put it, President Joe Biden, who said the other day, you know, doctors let you live. Nurses, male or female, make you want to live. How about that? Is is a once there is less of a staffing shortage of nurses, then is the idea of mandatory staff to patient ratios going to come back around? Right now, we're talking about not having enough nurses, right. and the hospitals right. are right. saying oh, we can't we can't necessarily keep this ratio that you want or. Well, they're going to have to try because there's going to be committees watching them. How effective will that be? Will we need further legislation? As they say, only time will tell. But one of the other things that's really bothering the nurses is that the hospitals staffed down early on. You know, before the pandemic, they were staffed down. So when the pandemic hit, what they started doing was they hired these traveling nurses at like double or sometimes even triple the salary of 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 a staff nurse. And the nurses would certainly like to see that stopped and have the hospitals hire on instead. And maybe from these committees, they'll be able to you know, make that point that financially, it, it makes more sense for everybody to staff up, pay a, a better salary and see where you're going. And then Monica, t- we, we need to move on to other topics. Monica, there are, speaking of workers, uh, there are a lot of workers feeling underappreciated, underpaid. We've got some union f- uh, Ferment, ferment to going on here. What's happening with our region's union movements? Yeah, absolutely. In our region, I mean, we we sometimes feel like the epicenter because we've got places like Amazon and Starbucks here. But really, across the country, we're seeing this massive surge in union activity. More than a more than fifty percent jump in the past year in both workers going on strike and workers petitioning to form a union. So, really big increase um, in the wake of the pandemic, and here locally. It seems like every single day there's a different union or group of unions that's coming out and saying, like, we are not getting what we need from our employer. Big ones this week were city employees and PCC workers, Mm -hmm. both calling for their employers to give them raises that match the rate of inflation in Seattle. Well, the the Federal Reserve is trying to fight inflation. Part of inflation is wage inflation. Can you give us a picture of the choppy waters, the, the the wind at the back of a union movement, and why uh, versus headwinds for the local union movement? Sure. I mean, there are always headwinds for unions. The, the common refrain is that the only thing that's harder than forming a union is uh, negotiating a contract once you do. Mm. Um, and then you know, the, the Fed is really worried about something, that, this economic theory called the, um, it's the wage price spiral, where 
prices go up, workers demand higher wages to deal with the cost of living, they get raises, uh, but the cost of paying workers more means businesses have to raise their prices on consumers and you get stuck in a cycle. So that's the concern at the Fed and why they're one of the reasons they're really, really trying to rein in inflation. Um, but for everyday working folks, especially in a place like Seattle, housing costs have never been higher. The cost of pretty much everything has never been higher. And they're turning to their employers and saying, look, if you want me to do this job, if you want me to live close enough to do this job, then you've got to pay me more. Are home prices easing in the region? They're, I think they're, they're increasing at a slower rate. Mm, yeah. That's the way to think about it. Right. And Monica, are the layoffs done? Microsoft just got rid of another, what, almost 700 people? Who knows? Yeah, Facebook had uh, another 11,000 layoffs this week. So yeah. that was pretty significant. How many, but not, and, not all of those in, uh, we know where those are, those 11,000? No, they're not saying specifically um, w w which locations. That's across locations, though. They're not yeah. all here in the Seattle area. Right. But these big tech giants that seemed like they could just grow forever are really uh, in, in a new era. They're in a more conservative era. They're feeling the economy feels very spooky right now and um and they might might come out and announce that they need to thin their ranks even more but where is this all in comparison to pre-covid days because they hired on during covid have we gotten back to pre-covid numbers it's a good question i don't know exactly the answer to that um but it is it's kind of similar to the question about you know housing prices going down it's, right. it's not that they're going down it's that they're not going up as fast and these companies during the pandemic just grew at outrageously. Like they couldn't hire fast enough. And now a lot of those folks who they brought on have been let go or are being let go. So it's not that we're seeing a huge number of employees, particularly in the bigger scope of the economy being laid off. It's that it's a real cultural change for these companies that didn't seem like they were the type to do this in the, in the past. Well, to me, one of the one of the big things about the tech layoffs is you can feel it that since the layoffs, the balance of power uh, between mm -hmm. the employers and the employees has, has shifted. The employees had the upper hand there for a long time, which is why they kept resisting, you know, come back to the office for two days, three days, this and that, because they had all the options. That, you can tell, has shifted because, for example, Amazon is bringing employees back, I believe it's three days a week starting May 1st, and that, that clearly is a change. But to get to the point of um, some of the labor efforts, you know, it's hard to know the balance sheets of the entities we're talking about, but it feels to me that the folks are caught in the middle of this. You know, they, they need higher wages. Uh, the Fed is trying to curb inflation, but those two, those those two things are in conflict over time, and so you need you need the sort of Fed action to create results quicker. So these employees, they're reasonably, you know, they want to buy a stock of organic broccoli or something at PCC. It's it's more and more expensive. So they that's why they're asking. They it, it's immediate for them. It's not an overtime thing. It's right now. Finally, Monica. KUW's labor and economy reporter. Anything else you're working on or a question you're really, you know, watching that, that we should know about? Yeah, I'm really interested in, I mean, we're talking about two different things here because there's the layoffs affecting a, a kind of narrow slice of the economy, the, the tech industry and media to a certain extent. But then we've also got this trend of the great resignation, which pertains to nurses, where we've had a lot of folks in particular industries leave and not want to go back. And so I'm interested in this question of what's it going to take to get those workers back and talking to hiring managers in industries like healthcare, teaching, the hospitality industry about their struggles and, and what has been successful. Because my hunch is that some of the systemic issues that make these industries really hard to work in, particularly during the pandemic, are going to need to be addressed before you can really get people back in large numbers. The, the work needs to be valued more. They need to be paid better. And there needs to be something done to address the mental health issues of dealing with, with patients and customers who are can be really nasty to workers in these industries. Mm -hmm. 
That's KOW's labor and economy reporter Monica Nicholsberg. We have journalists Joanne Silberner and Joni Balter here. I'm Bill Radke. We're streaming the show. This is Week in Review. It's on YouTube and Facebook. Search KOW Public Radio. Let's take a quick break and check in on our legislature again, which is in session and doing other things, and check the blossoms and the smiles when we return. It's KUOW's Week in Review, so let's review what our state legislature is doing in Olympia. They are in session, and Joni, one of the things they're debating, more gun restrictions. What are they looking at doing? Uh, Three different things, just to sum it up here. Banning the sale and manufacturing of assault-style weapons, Mm -hmm. uh, creating a 10-day waiting period for the purchase of firearms, Mm -hmm. And not to be left out, allowing the state to sue gun manufacturers. And so, you know, uh, I believe that it makes sense to use the slightly stronger Democratic majority in the ledge to do what voters actually seem to want them to do. Uh, And so uh, I, I talked to the CEO at the Alliance for Gun Responsibility, Renee Hopkins, and she said she really does think this time, and this has come up so many different years and it didn't happen, but so she believes that lawmakers, this is her quote, are going to do their job and pass all three of these life-saving laws. Um, as for, you know, what will be the fate of these ultimately, like will these laws actually hold up in court, um, there'll probably be challenges. You, you can always bet on that, but not necessarily victorious. Yeah. Well, we have some evidence from other states. Monica, you were wondering about how Washington state compares. Yeah, I'm just curious if we're following anyone else's playbook, if these particular set of regulations have been put into effect elsewhere and and what impact they've had on gun violence. And also if this is something where Washington is kind of blazing its own trail and and doing something new. The answer to all of that is yes. Um, What I mean is, so for in the case of assault weapons ban, nine other states have these laws. I think the latest was Illinois to do that. And they have historically been upheld. And the ability to to sue gun manufacturers, you know, up until now, uh, this is only this is like one of maybe a few industries that gives uh, immunity to industries or states. Uh, And I, you know, ask yourself, is this working really well so far? Maybe not. I want to know what the courts are going to say about it. Uh, You know, I can't predict the courts, but we do have a rather liberal court here here we do in washington state how high does it go i don't know and i also want to point out here that you know until this kind of majority the voters of washington state are blazing their own trail in some ways there are states that are that are better at this but in terms of voter approved initiatives you know it did seem that the the gun the um the folks who are trying to have gun control were sort of loving Washington state because they could get things passed here by like 57 percent, 60 percent. So that was background checks in 2014, mm-hmm. um, extreme risk protection orders in 2016, and then additional regulations on semi-automatics and, and safe storage a couple years later. So our voters aren't kidding. If you look at the numbers in polls, I guess, and maybe the best poll is how they vote. Uh, you get 60 to 70 percent, 58, all those kind of numbers. By Eastern Washington, they just seceded. They're gone. <laughs> Along with Eastern Oregon. Yeah. yeah right. Well, I don't know. You know, on the federal level, we had Trump signing a, a bump stock bill, that, a ban on bump stocks, which make semi-automatic weapons more dangerous. Mm-hmm. That, that passed. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, let's see. What actually passes in Olympia, as you said, the Democratic majority is even stronger this year than it was last year. Um, Meanwhile, in Olympia, we have the problem of fentanyl, which is this super potent synthetic opioid. It killed 708 people officially last year in King County, fatal overdoses. Of course, hundreds more in this county, that county, and to prevent some overdoses— some state lawmakers want to legalize fentanyl test strips. Joanne, what is a fentanyl test strip and why is it currently illegal? Well, first, let me say that 
although illegal, it is being used, and, and the county has some programs. I'll talk about that in a minute. But what it is, two milligrams of this stuff is can kill you. A fentanyl. It, a fentanyl. And what the test strips are, you know, you take a little bit of a pill. And I'm not sure whether you have to add any liquid, but it's a pretty easy test. You use these test strips. You can see if it's there. You know, the big question is if you— I thought you had to dissolve some of it in water. You, yeah, yeah, that's probably—I I don't know the particulars, but mm-hmm. that sounds right. But the question is, will a drug user use this? You know, there, one of the, the woman who, who has brought this up to the legislature— I think her daughter had taken a painkiller from a friend. And and they can make these things that they really look legitimate. They look like pharmaceutical drugs, you know, in capsules or whatever, in a pill form. And they look legitimate. She had taken a painkiller from a friend and and it killed her. Would she have used this strip? I don't know. Would the person on the street who's buying from their dealer use this strip? There have been already 100,000 distributed through various programs that the King County, that the health department knows about. And it's uh, they actually have a couple of vending machines, one in Kent and one somewhere here in Seattle, that where you can actually just get it for free, no questions asked. There, and uh, Uncle Ike's Pot Shop has them as well. And but it's technically so they're being distributed, but they're illegal because they're considered drug paraphernalia. And why is that? Well, this has always been the problem with you know some of these ideas of. Uh, what, there's a term for it, you know, where where you're trying to protect people from drugs by providing them, providing good ones, providing clean it, needles. It's called harm reduction. Thank it's you. stuff like needle exchanges and Narcan. Right. So all these harm reduction things have had this hurdle to jump over. You know, giving out clean needles, you're you're helping people to use drugs. Letting them test for a poison, you're helping people. That's why it's illegal, but I don't know how long, you know, I think if the data starts showing that it is a help and it's saving lives, and it, I mean, this is a tremendous new epidemic that's going on. And if we, if they, it can, these strips stop it, I think I'm not sure that it'll remain illegal. I, I want to hear from Monica and Joni, but I want to make clear: some listeners who don't are all up on this might be confused by why are why do you, why do people not know whether fent I thought fentanyl was addictive and cheap and it's a high and a, but do, but some people don't know that they're taking fentanyl. Would you just catch everybody? Oh up? yeah, I'm sorry. So in in the illegal drug world, where you know you go to a dealer, you get your heroin, you get any other kind of powder drug. Sometimes they cut it with this because it has a powerful effect. You think you know why would dealers do this or why would the the sources for the dealers do this, they're going to be killing off their um, their clientele. That's an open question. But, you know, I guess if you add just a little bit, it you know, you can cut down on the amount. Fentanyl is very easy to make in a lab, a clean way. You don't have to have people grow it. There's Intercepting it is much more difficult than intercepting the ingredients for heroin, for example. Right. So they might add it to that, and you buy your street drugs. You know, you buy your painkillers on the street instead of from a pharmacy, and you don't know what you're getting. Monica, do you have any opinion or evidence that this would be widely used? I mean, I'm not I'm not a fentanyl guy, so I'm wondering how many people who are either addicted or just willing to take unidentified drugs are also cautious enough that they're going to use a fentanyl strip. I guess I'm I asking everyone. I think it's a higher adoption than you would you might expect. There's already, I mean, so first of all, the most people who use drugs do so casually. Most people who use drugs aren't addicts, aren't people who are buying heavy street drugs. They might be in, you know, kind of a party setting. And in those settings, there is already a culture of testing. There's an organization called Dance Safe that will put up pop-ups at, you know, live music events around town, and they'll offer to test stuff that people buy in the crowd right there, and, and people use it. So I think that is what the the sort of the target of these testing strips is. If you are somebody who's who's knowingly buying and using fentanyl, then you probably wouldn't test it. But if you're buying something to, you know, if you're going out for the weekend or something like that, and you just want to know what you're getting isn't going to kill you, I think that it's, I mean, why not make this a low barrier accessible option, just like other harm reduction tools like needle exchanges, like Narcan. If it can save lives, it's worth it. To me, the legislation makes sense, but I don't think it would be very successful without an educational component Mm -hmm. because, you know, for whatever reason I'm envisioning, maybe young people at a party, uh, someone handing, hey, you know, you have a headache, take this. Well, wait a minute, take what? 
uh, how can I know that what you're handing me, which is not coming from like a sealed bottle or something, how can I know what that has in it? And no, I'm not willing to die for a headache relief. Yeah, education is going to be key. But this is we're just at the very beginning of yeah. this. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Um, uh, week in review, we're getting toward the end of the show, seven minutes left, and we were discussing the, um, again, so I should say, by the way, that's, in case you just tuned in, the legislature is considering um, legalizing these already used but technically illegal fentanyl test strips. So now you know. We'll, we'll see what happens. We were talking, uh, Joni, earlier about the waterfront redevelopment, and uh, that involved, among other things, ripping out some cherry trees that line... Pike Street leading up to Pike Place Market. There was a last-minute public campaign to save them. How's that going? Well, for those trees, not that well, but they will be replaced by 24 new cherry blossoms, according to the city. Eight will be on Pike Street near the market, so, you know, you have to wait a little while, depending on how big the ones they put in are. 16 are going to go somewhere else, maybe along the new waterfront. Uh, But, you know, don't cut our cherry trees around here. We're all about tree cover. And when spring comes, like it seems to be here just today, those trees, they're so important to to all of us. Well, in fairness, the city was going to put in these elm trees that, from what I understand, were going to art. <laughs> You're making a face, Joni. They yeah. were, but they were going to make an arch, their own beauty. And maybe, uh, you know, an arch that lasts longer than those. Those blossoms last like three weeks. Uh, you, you 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 protect the tree you know you like. We know we like cherry blossoms, even though we hardly ever see them for uh, 49 weeks out of the year. But uh, we don't know what we didn't get with the elms. I'm just saying. In this case, the more trees, the better. So why don't you plant all of the ones that we were just talking <laughs> all about? All the trees. Yeah, I'm pro-tree here. Okay. Imagine if people summoned as much. I, I'm, I'm pro-cherry blossom. Who doesn't like cherry blossoms? But that's a lot of energy that people can summon, not as so much for human beings, but for trees and animals. It, the energy's there. Um, let's, let's talk about something. Maybe it's cherry blossoms. Anything that made you smile this week that you can pass on to us? Well, I was going to come in with the fairies, uh, but I, my fairy was late today, and they stopped in the middle to do an exercise that the Coast Guard wanted them to what? take. What? So- yeah. They stopped in the middle of your run. They well, actually, didn't... right as as we got as we got to shore, it, the the ferry started turning all different ways, and it turned out it was a uh, they had to do a simulated rescue operation. And I know this because one of the ferry employees told me. So I will give a smile to hmm. the ferry employees because they're terrific. They are. And similar to the nurses, they're overworked right. and they're not enough of them. So I'm going to give a smile to the idea of being more of them. Mm. But I think I'm going to change my smile to the cherry blossoms because I just bought a flowering cherry and I've been waiting to put it in and I've decided today's the day it goes into my yard. Excellent. By the way, I'm looking at the UW campus cherry blossom webcam, live webcam uh, there, there's no blossoms yet. They're late. They're a little bit late. I normally they come around this week or maybe next week, right? But I think it's not, the next no, week or next even week. sort yeah. of. Uh, I think the the average date is like March 26. Yeah. And yeah. I looked at the cam. I couldn't see them blossoming. But the note says green buds are now visible. Peak bloom is typically. You're right. P- typically the third week of March. Good. Yeah. So now we're now they're expecting. First week of late, late first week of April. Something. I better like get that. that tree in fast. <laughs> I uh, and last year they were do- all the blossoms were done by April eighth, and I know this because this is what I'm I smiled about. I know this because there is a UW Cherry Blossoms Twitter account, and the tw- and after on April eighth they posted, alas, three weeks is far too short of a time to see such excellent and ad- admirable people. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like. And I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. <laughs> I have no idea what that was means. Was that a bot? I think it's that's from, a bot. It's from the Fellowship of the Ring. Oh. <laughs> tell me, Monica. What the- Bilbo says it at his birthday party during his speech oh. before he disappears. Oh. Well, now, now life just got a little less mysterious. 
I was sort of enjoying being clueless, but, uh, but I guess that's good to know. Glad to represent the nerds on this panel. Thank you, Monica. <laughs> Did you smile at anything besides? Uh, yeah, it's St. Patrick's Day. I'm going to make my grandmother's corned beef and cabbage tonight. And my toddler can see all the airplanes and the birds in the sky again, which he's thrilled about. It's all making me smile. Mm. Joni, you were talking about I was Saint talking Patrick's about St. Patty's Day. You, you you didn't take my smile. You shared, you shared my smile. smile. I want to uh, say something positive about and smile at, I guess, four-leaf clovers. And I want to do a fun fact on corned beef. Is this okay? Yeah. Please. The Irish did not invent corned beef. They got it from... The Jews. They got it from the Jewish people on the Lower <laughs> East Side of Manhattan. My people. And in similar neighborhoods in... Pittsburgh, where I come from. Okay. I love that fact because I'm both Irish and Jewish, so oh. now I can claim it twice. You got it twice. <laughs> yeah, it's brisket, right? It's exactly. kosher. Yeah. It's the front, the front of the cow. Oh, oh it's, that's a brisket. piece of meat. Yeah, right. yeah. so yeah. salt cure. The Irish didn't come up with salt cure. Why do we think it's Irish? Mm, they they act do. like it. <laughs> 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 they sell it with confidence. Okay, well, good. That's all good. Um, and, of course, uh, 7, 18 p.m. sunset on a 60-something degree weekend. Ain't bad. I'll give you that, too. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming along, being Week in Review. Joanne Silberner. Yeah. Great Monica Nicholsberg is KOW's labor and economy uh, reporter. And we've got, oh, yes. Oh, that, that authentic Jewish music. That Klezmer <laughs> coming on in. Uh, freelance journalist Joanne Silberner, contributing columnist Joni Balter. Thanks, everybody. Thank, thank you. you. And uh, remember, KUOW, our slogan is, you might tire of our pledge drives, but at least we're not asking for a bank bailout. (laughs) You should hear the pledge drive at Silicon Valley Public Radio right now. You know, most of our bailout comes from taxpayers just like you. And we won't bother with you a a thank you gift either. Um, Thank you to everybody who puts this show. Or no, no tote bag from Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, Thank you to producer Kevin Kniestet and... To Bernard Wallet, who's running the board and playing our music, and Juan Pablo Chiquiza, Tio Popescu, helping us see all of this with social media and live streaming. And thank you uh, for listening to another Week in Review. Let's do it again in seven days. Hi, it's Bill Radke again, and I have another podcast series for you. It's right here in your Week in Review feed. I'm calling it Words in Review. Every Monday or so, I look into a word or a phrase that we've been hearing lately. Like, what counts as a Seattle dive bar? Why is it when people leave Seattle, it's called an exodus? What counts as a Northwest icon or legend? You don't have to do anything to find this Words in Review series. I'll drop it right here at the beginning of the week. So just look for it.